This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me today is Danny Hewson. We'll be chatting about the reopening of shops and what it means for some of the companies on the UK stock market. Welcome, Danny. Hello. So Laith Calif is also with us on the show to talk about investment funds where managers are not really adding any extra value despite investors paying them money each year. Hi, Laith. Hi, Dan. Dan will also be talking about the return of a very famous fund manager to the scene. He's going to chat to Joe Baumfrand from AVI Global Trust about the attractions of family-run companies. Jenny Owens also here with a great robot-related money story. Hello. I can't wait to hear that one. It's also got beer involved in that. But first up, Dan's going to tell us what's been going on in markets over the past week. Yeah, it's been a really good time. So the S&P 500, which is one of the big indices in the US, has hit another record high. Um, Investors seem to be focused on the start of the first quarter earnings season. So this is going to shed a light on how companies have been faring as the economy reopens. So we've got quite a few banks reporting this week. I'm also going to have numbers out from PepsiCo. So I think that will probably shed a light on how much snacking we've been doing. I think it's known for its fizzy drinks like Pepsi and 7-Up, but it also owns Walker's Crisps and Doritos. I would have thought the crisp sales being very strong in the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Drink sales hit by restaurant and pub closures. So, yeah, so Danny, have you you've been snacking away on your crisps? Doritos, love them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, so Bitcoin hit a new price high of uh, just over $63,000, uh, pushing the market capitalization of the world's largest digital currency to about $1.2 trillion. That surpasses the value of Brazil's entire stock market. And the new high coincided with the stock market debut of the nation's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Coinbase. So on the UK market, we've had some very good numbers from Recruitment companies, they're coming out saying they're much more confident on the outlook. They're raising their earnings expectations. Um, We've also had another record high from the FTSE 250 index. So they had some names like uh, Restaurant Group, which owns Wagamama's, done very well this year on the stock market. Uh, And even Hammerson, which is a property company that owns lots of retail uh, parks and shopping centers, which has struggled for a long time, seen its share price rise by 50% so far this year. So mid-caps... Uh, which is a good way of um, describing the FTSE 250. They've historically done better than larger ones, beating the FTSE 100 and even the, the US S&P 500 on a 20-year basis. So, Leith, I know that you are a man who loves to m- create spreadsheets and um, <laughs> you have some numbers on how much money someone could have made in the FTSE 250. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, probably best just quickly kind of go over the, what the FTSE 250 is. So you've got the FTSE 100, which is the 100 biggest stocks in the UK market. The 250 is the next 250 biggest stocks. So basically from 100 down to 350. Um, so now if you're looking at that bit of the market over the last 20 years, £10,000 invested um, back in 2001 would now be worth £62,850. So pretty good return on your money. I think we probably all agree. Now, if you compare that with the FTSE 100, that's the big boys, then um, you've got a return on £10,000 of £25,000. £180. So 
still a decent return, but not in the same league as, as FTSE small cap. And just to throw in another comparison, because you mentioned it there, down the S&P 500, which, as we know, has been much lauded for, for strong performance, largely because of the big US tech firms, £10,000 would have, would have delivered today just under £49,400. So still a very good return, but less than the FTSE 250 mid caps. And that just suggests that it's a very good place in the market to be invested. It's a bit of a sweet spot in between a company being kind of very small and very big. So, you know, companies in that in that area, probably they're robust enough that they've got good finances. They've probably got recurring customers, um, but they're not quite big enough as the big stodgy kind of blue chips where perhaps revenue growth gets a bit bit difficult to generate and, and costs can become more difficult to control. So uh, a very strong reason to kind of consider mid caps for your portfolio there, I think. So, Danny, it's reopening week. I want to know how many of the following you've ticked off your list so far. So, have you gone to the shops, had a pint of cider, swam five kilometres or had your hair cut? I feel really miserable, but do you know I've done none of those things? <laughs> <laughs> how about you? Yeah, I've been swimming twice. And that's it. So... I look forward to the ones later on. Yeah, I, I'm incredibly um, excited about the prospect of getting a haircut, but unfortunately I'm going to have to wait a couple of weeks. And I think that is something which is impacting everybody's experience of this reopening because, of course, not everybody can reopen. I think it was only 44% of pubs were expected to be able to reopen on Monday. Um, and that, of course, is because huge numbers of them don't have that outside space. So they have been massively impacted by that. Now, when it comes to retail, retail uh, the British Retail Consortium said that footfall on Monday, despite those insane scenes that we saw of people queuing up outside the likes of JD Sport and Primark, it was actually down 15% on two years ago, so pre-pandemic levels. So it just demonstrates exactly what sort of a hurdle retail is going to have to overcome. And I think that does explain why we've seen some of the reaction that we have on the stock market over the last couple of days. So Primark's owner, Associated British Foods, slipped 1.7% in early trading on Monday, and it's still down a short while ago, 1.9% since Monday. So, you know, clearly people are concerned about the amount of money that these companies are going to make because online is still featuring incredibly heavily. So when you have a look, Boohoo uh, over the last few days up 4.5%, ASOS up 1.3%, whereas Next down 3.1%. And I think that tells you all you need to know about the fact that online isn't going to go away. And although Next, of course, does a bit of both, it lost money during the pandemic because it's had to completely shift its operations. And when you think about the retailers that have been able to remain open, Tesco is a really interesting one. We had results from them today and their profits 20% lower than last year. And that is despite the fact that like-for-like -like sales were up 7.7%. And that is because of the cost of actually operating during a pandemic. COVID costs 892 million. They've also handed back business rate relief of 535 million. Now, JD Sports, which had its results out the day before, it had sales up um, from 
1.11 billion up to 6.17 billion to the end of January but profits again were down by 8%. Now they've said that they're not going to pay back furlough or business rates which of course might be a bit of contentious with some people consumers might raise a few concerns about that but they've said look you know operating during a pandemic having to put in all those extra online capacity it all costs and this is uh, definitely affecting us so i think over the next really weeks and months we're going to see this changeover we're going to see whether or not bricks and mortar retailer really still does have a place on our high streets or whether you know we've really shifted our shopping habits while during lockdown uh, moving on though to the world of fund management we've had several star fund managers fall from grace in recent years one of them is now hoping to make a comeback. Dan, tell all. Yes, this is Neil Woodford's former right-hand man, Mark Barnett. So uh, I think lots of people will be familiar with Neil Woodford, um, ran various uh, funds and with Invesco. Then he left and set up shop on his own. Um, and he, Mark Barnett was essentially his colleague at Vesco for a long time. So Mark took over Neil Woodford's funds when he left, and then he just suffered years of quite poor performance. Um, and it got to the stage where um, Vesco and Mark Barnett just came to the conclusion it's best to part ways. He's been off the scene for just under a year now, but he's, he's going to come back and join um, a little tiny outfit called Telworth Investments and set up an income fund. Now, I think there's a bit of a tall order here. I don't think there's a, a big queue of people waiting to say, oh, great, he's back. I'm going to put my money with him. But, but actually, it's one of those situations where you need to perhaps take a step back and, and sort of consider his circumstances. Now, he, he joined Invesco in 1996. He spent 24 years there. Uh, he, he did incredibly well with a contrarian approach. So he was looking for areas of the market that was mispriced and unloved. And he had a big focus on dividends and sustainable cash flow. And it did well for a long time. So, um, you know, rightfully created this uh, reputation as a fund manager to follow. When he took on the funds that would run previously by Neil Woodford, he was left with lots of stuff perhaps he didn't like. Um, lots of investors took their money out and followed Neil Woodford to his new venture. So he, he was having to deal with redemptions from investors. And then the portfolio ended up having lots of smaller companies in it and, and lots of market concerns about liquidity. For example, could he sell those stocks if needed to be in a very rapid fashion? So um, I think that at Telworth, he's going to be um, given a chance to to prove himself, to create a portfolio from scratch. So I don't think people should write him off completely, but I think it will be quite a hard sell initially to, to, to rebuild this reputation. Yeah, confidence. Yeah, confidence is is really difficult. Once it's lost, it's really hard to get back. Um, Laith is with us again, and sometimes on a Wednesday we hear a very interesting sound in the background, and you do get very worried that your cleaners are suddenly going to burst in with their vacuum cleaners, Laith. That's right. Yeah, and it could happen at any minute. To be honest with you, um, so yeah, stand st stand stand alert. Um, but hopefully, we'll get through without without uh, without the sound of the vacuum kicking off. 
Now, you weren't with us last week, but your cleaners did get us thinking about the importance of making sure that you spring clean your investment portfolio. And we were having a chat and there's a really interesting bit of information that we didn't get to last week that uh, people might want to take note of. Yeah, that's right. I think probably, you know, one of the damaging, most damaging things to people's wealth can be serial underperformance um, from funds. Um, And, you know, we've talked a little bit today about um, Mark Barnett, who went through a period of three or four years of of underperformance. And, you know, I'd I'd actually say in the context, um, you know, of of his investment style, which was very much out of favour for all of those years, um, you know, there's there's a there's a good reason for that, and you know, there's good reasons why people still might want to be invested in a fund like that, um, because you know, investment trends do do change. But there are some funds um, which do have longer track records of serial underperformance, and I'm talking um, about periods of, of you know above five years, above ten years, in some cases above twenty years, um, and these funds are sometimes referred to in the market as closet trackers. And a lot of the time, these funds were set up um, back in late 90s or, or or early 2000s. And at the time, they were kind of, you know, top of the pops in terms of what they were offering. They offered kind of a new brand of private investors access to, to core um, equity markets. Um, and the way that they did that was simply by setting themselves up very similar to the indexes in which they they. They invested, so a, a UK fund would simply invest largely in the FTSE All Share. There might be a few little tinkering, bits of tinkering around the edges here and there, but not much. Um, and, and the result that you get from that, you know, from that kind of closet tracking approach, is a portfolio which performs largely in line with the market. But the kicker for these funds is that they are nominally active funds, and they do charge uh, fees for active management. Um, and so you may well be paying 0.75%, 1%, maybe more for a fund which largely follows uh, an index. And as a result of that, you find that there's a very big drag on your portfolio compared to the to the index, particularly over time. And it can be really damaging to your wealth. So I think it's important people keep a lookout for these things. Uh, they will probably tend to be in older um, uh, investments that they have probably pensions um largely responsible i think particularly kind of from from the 90s and i say early 2000s often set up by insurers like i say at the time these things did 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 a decent job but now there are so many more options available on the market to to investors and actually by switching across uh, for the same price investors could get a properly actively managed fund that's got a high conviction approach and actually has a chance um, of outperformance or alternatively um, they could simply switch into a proper index tracker fund, and that would be much lower in terms of cost. And as a result, either way, investors would probably find themselves quids in uh, from having a route around for these things in their portfolio and, and switching out if they find any. So over the years that I've been writing about companies, one area that keeps coming up is the debate around family-controlled businesses. So many investors are interested in this space because these companies tend to have certain qualities that make them stand out. So I'm pleased to say that we've got Joe Baumfreund, Portfolio Manager of the AVI Global Trust, back on the podcast to talk about this topic. So hi, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you back. So let's start with the key question. So why are family-controlled companies often considered to be good investments? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, there's lots of different areas to discuss uh, about family control companies. 
Now, within AVI Global Trust, we're interested in certain types of family businesses, and specifically, uh, those would form under, uh, fall under the, the category of family-controlled holding companies. So these tend to be more like investment companies that own stakes in a handful of different businesses. In some cases, they control their, these businesses in their entirety, and sometimes it's just minority or majority stakes, and they can be listed and unlisted. And we like them for a, a number of different reasons. But essentially, we like the long-term perspective that families bring to these businesses. They're not driven by short-term results. They can make those long-term decisions that are in the best interest of the, those businesses without worrying about the short-term impact. They're also um, often run in, in a more conservative nature when it comes to the finances. They don't tend uh, to take on too much debt. They tend to be rather con rather conservative and, uh, and focused on genuinely growing those businesses rather than trying to shoot the lights out. So as long-term investors ourselves, we see um, these families very often as great partners to have in um, in that pursuit of long-term capital growth. Yeah, because I've often been told that sort of family businesses don't take that many risks because they, they, they want the company to be around for generations to come. But I was just wondering whether if that's a negative because if they're, they're missing out from taking a chance on doing something bold. Look, I can see where, I can see where that comes from, but... Um, I think it's a little bit more nuanced in the, came, in the case of the families. It's not that they are necessarily passive and scared uh, to do anything. They really want to approach things in a more measured way. Um, and they don't want to risk everything that's been generated in the generations prior to them. Uh, they don't have the, the sort of the, the motivations, perhaps, of some CEOs of businesses to get that private jet or get that flash car or things like that it's, it's much more solid um, oh, and, and as I said before it means they can take their time so yeah I think probably over the short term they could um, appear to be underwhelming compared to perhaps the raciest companies out there at a, at a given time but the proof is in the pudding and they, they tend to stand the test of time and that is really what we're after. I don't think our investors would thank us if we um, you know, were investing in a company that blew itself up just because they went for it in such a big way. Um, and those slow and measured returns that are, that are consistent is really what we want to try and achieve. And do, do, do these sort of family businesses suffer from valuation discounts because the, the, perhaps the market doesn't like a, a one person or a group of connected parties wielding too much control? Absolutely. Uh, and this is, in fact, why we like them so much, or certainly one of the key reasons why we like them so much. Um, they do trade at a discount, and a lot of investors don't like them. Um, investors don't like the fact that they're controlled by a family, and, and perhaps for some of the reasons in your earlier questions, you know, they think they're just not going to be as exciting as other companies out there. They are going to be um, a bit more staid, perhaps, and... For that reason, investors might think they're able to find the most exciting investments themselves and they don't need um, to be invested with a passive, boring family. Um, other investors don't like the fact that um, the family is in control 
And so at best, you'll, you'll be a large minority shareholder and you might be able to engage in debate with that company, but you'll never be able to exert fully your influence on the, on the business. Um, the question of nepotism arise, arises quite often. And, um, you know, if, if the reins of the company are handed down just because um, you're a child of the previous generation, it doesn't necessarily ensure you get the best uh, people running the business. Um, so these are these are things that investors slightly tend to worry about when when they think about family investments. Uh, and in the case of of AGT's focus on family controlled holding companies, the other element they question is the diversification, because uh, as I said, a lot of these holding companies are invested in a variety of different businesses. And that diversification may not appeal uh, to to every investor. Yes. So those are those are the negatives I think that that people um, look at. Um, we see quite a lot of positives, in fact. Okay, good. I mean, uh, why why are these companies listed on the stock market? Obviously, surely they don't really want to be dealing with external shareholders. They want to be in control. And um, is it simply to just to tap? The, the capital markets when they perhaps need to raise money for expansion? Or... Well, a lot of these um, holding companies that, that we invest in have, have been listed for um, you know decades. And the reasons perhaps why they were listed 30, 40, 50 years ago perhaps don't apply. Um, and the reality is that few family-controlled holding companies are being, are being listed today, few if any, I would say. Um, and the reason why it's not particularly appealing to list uh, these entities is because they tend to trade at valuation discounts. So there's no point really in issuing them. Um, historically, they may have served a purpose um, in jurisdictions where there was a wealth tax to um, suppress the true value of that wealth because the shares traded at a discount. And so your wealth was assessed below its true worth. And so your tax tax bill was uh, was reduced. Um, and historically also, the, the, the public markets have been a way for these families to um, exert control over a greater pool of assets without actually owning, without actually having a, a direct economic interest to the extent of that control. So if you had a series of listed holding companies, for example, each owning 50.1% per stake, stakes in the next company beneath them, then with limited capital, you could control a, a greater pool of assets. And certainly that's been the case in Europe um, over the last few decades. And we've seen simplification of those structures, which has unlocked value for us uh, as minority shareholders and for the families. Um, but, but bringing it forward um, to, to today, uh, a lot of the families, despite what I said earlier, that of some of the negatives that people see you know, the fam in, in the family control, um, a lot of these family businesses are run on a day-to-day -day basis by um, professionals from outside of the family. Uh, who are very keen that the company they're presiding over should, should trade at an appropriate valuation and not trade at a discount. Families, as they evolve through the generations for a variety of different reasons, will want to monetize some of their capital and having a public market listing uh, will facilitate that. Um, at various points in time, having the listing has also enabled them to do certain transactions um, and in, in partnership with others or themselves and, and just to get exposure to good quality deal flow, perhaps. 
So there are a variety, a variety of reasons. And importantly, increasingly, we're seeing much greater focus on standards of corporate governance from these families so that they, they see them as vehicles for the family, but also for minority shareholders. And that's important. And those are the ones that we want to be invested in, because if they're seen as being purely a vehicle for the interests of the family, um, and they could potentially abuse the interests of minority shareholders, well, that's a good reason why they should trade cheaply, they should trade at a discount, and we don't really want to be invested in it. But when you have family-controlled holding companies that are well-run, that own high-quality assets, that are going to grow in value over time, and where there is a focus on narrowing that discount over time and, and correcting the valuation mispricing dislocation, well, that's potentially a very interesting opportunity for us. And particularly if it's being done in a responsible, mature, conservative manner with the eye on the long term, then that's even better. So do, do you want to perhaps give give me some examples of the companies, uh, family-run businesses that you, you really do find interesting and perhaps why? Yeah. Well, um, I was looking back and uh, I joined AVI in the summer of 2002. So coming on 19 years ago. And, and one of the first companies I worked on as a junior analyst uh, was a Swedish family controlled holding company called Investor AB. And this is controlled by the, the Wallenberg family and has been involved in um, Swedish industry for generations. Um, and what's interesting is that it's been part of our portfolio since then. So we've owned it for more than 20 years. And it's been a consistent, um, strong performer, outperformer of, of markets in, in, a, in a very big way. Uh, now, it, it owns a portfolio um, that is split roughly 70 to 30% listed and unlisted assets. Amongst the listed portfolio, it has stakes in companies such as Atlas Copco, ABB, Ericsson, and also AstraZeneca. Uh, it's often a large shareholder in these companies with board seats and gets involved in the strategy of those businesses. And um, that active ownership is another thing that we look for. Um, and it allows the family to exert it, it, its long-term influence on those businesses and ensure that they follow the ethos of the families and um, try and achieve all those things, all those good things that we've discussed uh, previously. And then they've made some very good um, investments in the unlisted arena, um, notably a, a um, US-based healthcare company called Molnica, which is involved in uh, wound care, post-surgical wound care principally, but other areas of, of health, which has been, a, a, again, a very resilient, a very strong grower over the years of their ownership. So it's just a great example of a company that owns high quality businesses, that invests in those businesses to ensure that they grow for years to come, that can take long term decisions, can take tough decisions when things aren't going well or when or when those tough decisions need to be made um, and has generally created a huge amount of value for the family, for the philanthropic foundations that the family run and that are big shareholders here and for minority shareholders such as that. Well, Joe, thank you ever so much. Really great to have you back on the podcast. Um, fascinating stuff. So this is Joe Baumfreund from the AVI Global Trust. Thank you very much. Now, we've just got time for one more bit on the podcast. It's the bit you've all been waiting for. It's Jenny and her latest surreal take on the world of money. Jenny. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, with so many Brits heading to the pub this week, 
it seemed fitting to have a beer-themed Money Madness story. An engineering YouTuber has poured maybe the most expensive pint of all time using a robotic dog. Michael Reeves bought one of the Boston Dynamics robo-dogs called Spot for $75,000 and using his expert coding and engineering skills, he built in metres of tubing and a pint of beer. Reeves then taught Spot to recognise an empty cup and urinate the beer into it, apparently <laughs> apparently producing a room temperature bev. Most of the robotic dogs sold have been used to research the possibility of using a mechanical replacement for guard dogs or in the army to carry weaponry and other equipment for infantry in the US. Now, they look remarkably similar to the robots from season four of the dystopian TV show Black Mirror and can move at the lightning speed of three miles per hour on almost any terrain. Now, looking at other pricey beers, Leeds-based brewer Northern Monk claimed their limited edition beer brewed at the summit of Ben Nevis was the UK's most expensive beer at £1,000 per 330 millilitres. They made just 50 bottles, with proceeds being donated to a local charity. Brewdog also made waves with their The End of History beer made 10 years ago. With an alcoholic percentage of 55%, it wasn't for the faint of heart. And at $20,000 a bottle, it also wasn't for the faint of wallet. Um, The idea was to raise funds to open a brewery in Ohio. And incredibly, it sold out. Now, I know you're supposed to drink ale at room temperature, but you'd think if you were spending all of that money, you'd put in some kind of refrigeration device as well. Yeah, have it chilled at least. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you'll be pleased to know that we're going to continue the robot theme on next week's podcast, as Laith is going to be talking to asset manager Sanlam about its artificial intelligence fund and all things robotics. Now, we've also got Richard Marwood from Royal London on where to find good sources of income on the UK stock market. So until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.